It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, now it's time to leave the capsule if you dare. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, junk in space. Space junk. Space junk. Or orbital debris, if you prefer, if you want to be all official about it. So let's talk, what is space junk? What is it? Uh, it's, uh, 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 I'll take the pressure off of you, Joe. What is it? Okay. Space junk. It's debris in space. It's stuff that's defunct. It's no longer working. It is stuff that has accumulated in orbit around earth that we can no longer control or use in any meaningful way that now is kind of a, an issue. That's what I was going to say. It can be, it can be any number of things. I mean, lots of different things are, we, we, we've put a lot of junk in space. Yeah. And just to be clear, we're, we're pretty much going by the NASA approach to, to defining this. They call it orbital debris usually, and they define it as man-made objects. So this does not include things that would occur out there due to like asteroids or meteoroids. None of that. We're talking specifically about man-made objects or really 
pieces of man-made objects that are in orbit around the Earth. And uh, there's a lot of different types of it. I mean, you're talking about everything from uh, defunct spacecraft that were left up there, spacecraft being anything <laughs> like satellites. Like whole spacecraft. Well, yeah. Yeah. Some cases, yeah. in some cases, well, we're talking about like whole space. If you call a satellite a spacecraft because it is capable of moving through space, then yes. yes. You know, what's funny is uh, the idea that after a spaceship, they stop using it. It doesn't just fall. No, it, it stays in orbit for, depending on how high altitude it is, it may stay there for a couple of years or wow. more than a century, but we'll get into that. So, Whoa. yeah, yeah, it all depends on the, the altitude of the orbit. So, uh, first of all, we're talking about things like defunct satellites, uh, upper stages of launch vehicles, which early, in the early days of space, of the space, uh, race, those launch vehicles would separate in uh, in orbit. It wouldn't, you know, the more... Uh, These days, they usually fall off uh, into the ocean before they hit orbit. Yeah, they, they they usually are at an altitude where their their uh, orbit degrades so rapidly as to be practically non-existent. So, yeah, they and they're designed so that they will fall back to Earth into an ocean, which is, you know, that's pretty much where you're going to hit... Yeah, Statistically three speaking. times out of four, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. because of because of how much ocean is covering the Earth, uh, but also carriers for payloads. So just think of that as like a cargo truck, like the truck part <laughs> mm-hmm. that's kind of left up there. Uh, the debris created as a result of different collisions and explosions. Some of those collisions were on uh, purpose. Some of them were accidental. I'll talk about the on-purpose ones in a minute. Uh, solid rocket motor effluents. So solid rockets use solid rocket fuel, and sometimes they don't burn it all up, and sometimes bits of that solid rocket fuel will end up being exposed to space and become this space debris that's flying around. Um, debris that was intentionally released during spacecraft launch or vehicle uh, release. So this might be something that when you're blowing the the seal between one part of a spacecraft and its launch vehicle ends up being ejected out into space as well. Mm -hmm. Even tiny specks of paint are considered space debris. So paint can chip off due to collisions, whether something is getting hit by tiny little particles or even thermal stress. So if it's undergoing lots of different heating and cooling, sometimes paint chips off and that paint can uh, represent space debris. I've also heard that there's stuff such as um, discarded astronaut gloves, spatulas, cameras, and crystals of human pee. Depending oh, upon wow, depending like upon your... Uh, crystals. Yeah. Yeah. Depending upon your your belief in various conspiracy theories, there might be some um some former, cosmonauts. former cosmonauts floating yeah. around up there too. There, I, I'm sure there are just a, a few chainsaws. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, I'll never forget when Leatherface went to space. <laughs> well, no, brought those chainsaw don't, collection. Don't say You're, that. Someone will make that movie. <laughs> well, they made Jason in space, and they made the Leprechaun in space. I'm waiting for. No, you don't remember that? Yeah, Canada had the rocket chainsaw program where they <laughs> they spent several decades just rocketing chainsaws into space. Was it powered by maple syrup or? Oh, powered by rockets. Uh, okay. By chainsaw magic. Chainsaw magic. All right, <laughs> Joe's a little loopy, guys. So uh, let's talk about some of the more interesting stories. I think of. The events that have led to large amounts of space debris uh, being spread over the Earth. Uh, right, because we, I mean, a lot of this stuff is accidental, but we in the past have created space debris almost on purpose. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily because we wanted to, well, definitely wasn't that we wanted to make things more difficult. We just wanted to try and We just test. wanted to blow stuff up. It's Yeah. It's, I guess it's kind of like littering. It's easy. 
Well, <laughs> it wasn't easy. It was rocket science, actually. Uh, so in the 1960s and 70s, there was this little thing going on at uh, uh, full speed by then. It had been in development for years. Uh, it's called the Cold War. Do you guys remember that? Actually, I do remember that. You guys wouldn't. And so I saw some James Bond movies and the, the third Rambo movie. I think I got it. Okay, all right. So you, you got a good grounding. So yeah. the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, uh, that was what a lot of the space race was about, was who can who can dominate space uh, first. And well, it was really who can launch things powerful enough to get into space and therefore probably also at your nation. Yeah, um, but well, especially the early days where the launching of satellites really meant, hey, look how far we can shoot this thing. We could probably hit you as well. Because if you look at those early satellites like Sputnik, the original Sputnik, uh, the technical sophistication of that was that it could go beep frequently. That was it. Well, but it could go uh, beep uh, frequently and, and, and loud enough for um, various people with ham radios to pick hear up it, on it. Yeah. And therefore, you know, it was proven. Right. It was one of those things that scared people because it said, oh, look how far they can shoot. Well, the space debris kind of comes out of that same thought process. The idea was to develop missile systems that had anti-satellite capability so that you could shoot down your enemy satellites. Because that was another fear was that if they can put something up there, they can spy on us. And if they're going to spy on us, then that's bad. We need a way of taking care of that and wiping out those spy satellites. And so there were tests both in the United States and the USSR uh, where they would launch these anti-satellite missiles that would collide with satellites and then blow up and then cause a lot of space debris, both from the missile and from the uh, satellite that was the target practice. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, by the way, not not we didn't just leave that off in the 60s and 70s. By we, I'm talking about humans in general. Not the three of us. No, not the three. <laughs> we have never, as to my knowledge, n- none of us and I'm going to even include Noel. I'm going to be generous and include Noel, our producer, in this. None of us, to my knowledge, has ever shot an anti-satellite missile uh, at a satellite and caused more space debris. I can neither confirm nor deny. Moving on, before we put on more lists, in 1988, uh, the U.S. changed its official policy to minimize the creation of new orbital debris, saying that this is that was that was after we kind of realized that that this was becoming an issue that yeah. it, that it wasn't just like oh it's harmless space is really big uh, most of it'll fall down anyway it's totes fine yeah yeah this was when they they realized that no we're starting to clutter up some very valuable regions of space not the not what I think most people would call the most valuable we'll get into that the most valuable uh, space real estate around the earth is uh, is relatively safe from space debris which is a good thing but uh and on June 3rd 1996 there was a, an explosion a Pegasus hydrazine auxiliary propulsion system exploded and at that time in 1996 it became the worst space debris incident in history uh, because the altitude and orbit of that particular satellite, it presented a potential threat to both the Hubble Space Telescope and to space shuttle crews, which prompted NASA to really study the effects of space debris on potential operations with greater urgency. Specifically, they wanted to look at how could this affect, uh, say, an astronaut that's on a spacewalk, and how do we mitigate this? How do we plan so that we minimize any threat that these astronauts would undergo in this kind of uh, situation. Um, and then before 2007, according to NASA, the principal source of debris was from explosions of old launch vehicle upper stages left in orbit with stored energy sources, such as residual propellants and high-pressure fluids. But on January 11, 2007, China caught up with uh, the U.S. and the USSR by firing a missile at the Fingyong 
uh, 1C weather satellite. So this was another test of an anti-satellite missile system. I remember when this happened. I remember hearing about it in the news. Um, and, uh, well, from their perspective, it worked. They, <laughs> they, the missile collided with the satellite and went boom. Uh, but it also means that it created what Encyclopedia Britannica calls the worst space debris event at that time. Uh, that has since been surpassed. You'll be happy to know, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but it created more than 3,000 fragments. And uh, the mass of the particles was spread out over the course of two years to create a cloud of debris that encircles the Earth. So you can actually look at some great images online that will show you the specific pathway. It's like a, it's like imagine one line of orbit around the Earth just cluttered with debris, and that's just from this one satellite. Now imagine that with lots of other degrees so that you have all these other rings encircling the Earth at different points. Some, In some cases, they crisscross with each other, uh, and you can start to see the problem that if you want to put anything within these orbits, this, this range of altitude, you're going to encounter big clouds of space debris, or potentially you'll encounter them. Keeping in mind, even at that altitude, space is big. <laughs> there, It's not like you're guaranteed to get hit, but you are certainly... Um, more prone to getting hit by space debris. And if you're hit by space debris, here's the really bad news. You create more space debris. All right. Mm. And, and, and also, I mean, that space debris, even if it's a, if it's a fleck of paint or a crystal of pee, that crystal is moving at thousands of kilometers an hour, which yeah. we're going to get into in a moment. Yeah. Um, I think that there were a couple more notes on the sure. timeline. Yeah, 2009. Yeah, we're not done with the happy stories yet. 2009, <laughs> that's when an American and a Russian communication satellite collided. Uh, the Russian satellite was defunct. The American one at that time was not. It was afterward. Um, and uh, that ended up being a massive collision that now, uh, according to NASA, the, the results of that collision account for one-third of all cataloged space debris. So not necessarily all space debris ever, but all the stuff that NASA has cataloged, one-third of it comes from this collision. Wow. Uh, on January 22nd, 2013, a piece from that Fingyong 1C satellite that the Chinese uh, shot with the missile, one piece of that collided with a Russian BLITS, Blitz satellite, uh, which was this really cool kind of it's think of a sphere, a mirrored sphere in space, and it changed the orbit and spin period, actually broke it into at least two pieces. And uh, the purpose of that satellite was to test a retro reflector design and act as a laser ranging device. And now it 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 don't work no more. So uh, that's just an overview of some of the events that have created this massive cloud of space debris. Um which kind of, I guess, leads to the question of how massive are we talking about, and and it's it's bad news. Uh, if you're if you're looking at objects that are larger than ten centimeters, NASA says there are about twenty one thousand pieces out there. That sounds like a whole lot, but then again, the Earth's pretty big. Yeah, yeah. Of course, if you <laughs> if you were to look at objects between one to ten centimeters. So 10 centimeters are, are larger. That's 21,000 pieces. Mm-hmm. If you look between 1 and 10 centimeters, you're talking more about half a million, 500,000 pieces flying around. Yeah. Uh, if you go down to less than 1 centimeter, then you're getting into huge numbers. Uh, and even the tiniest particles are a problem. Now, granted, a lot of the spacecraft, in fact, the spacecraft that is being designed today has shielding as part of the spacecraft for uh, just for these kind of um, these possible collisions, Impacts, right. yeah. So most of them have shielding that will protect them from collisions of things up to about three or four centimeters in size. 
But that's where we get into some of the problems with, you know, even if it's small, it's still a huge issue, right? I mean, first of all, I want to say that I think it's amazing that NASA can apparently identify and track objects as small as three millimeters from ground radar stations. Yeah. That's... In space. <laughs> that's, I, I had no idea until I started researching this. I mean, that's an incredible level of precision. Yeah, no, considering that I can't find my keys in my own room, that's, I'm going to go ahead and say that. I can't find technology. my glasses when I'm wearing them. Huh. Okay, so you mentioned earlier about how uh, even a little paint chip could yeah. cause a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of hard to imagine because these things are built really strong. And if you just stand next to them throwing a paint chip at them, or even I'd say like a baseball or something, it doesn't seem like you can do very much damage. Yeah, well, I can see that. Here's where um, some Newtonian physics comes in. Right. Um, <laughs> let's let's talk about momentum for a second. Well, <laughs> actually, I think what we want to talk about it's similar is kinetic energy. Sure. Uh, kinetic energy is uh, the force you get when uh, it's the the ability of something moving do work. Yeah. Um, so the kinetic energy of an object, say, flying through space is uh, one-half mass times velocity squared. All right. Now, velocity is speed plus a direction. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, okay. Well, the uh, you know, a paint chip, what's the mass there? It's got to be really small. Yeah, but you know? when you look at the speed, so the speeds we're talking about, debris traveling at around seven or eight kilometers every second. And, and and furthermore, when if you know, for example, they're traveling in opposite directions like that, um, that 2009 American and Russian communication satellite collision happened at some 42,000 kilometers per hour. Yeah. So yeah. At, at that speed, when you get when you get a lot of speed, it doesn't you know, the the mass of the object is. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's important because it's mm-hmm. going to be a factor in that equation. But even a small particle has the potential to do huge amounts of catastrophic damage. Right. Uh, so. Yeah, you're talking when you're talking at those speeds. There's no such thing as oh well, that's 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 tiny. We're well, fine. I mean, yeah, I mean, if you extrapolate, if you go beyond Newtonian physics and get close to relativistic speeds, where you're talking about a paint chip going near the speed of light, that paint chip turns into a nuclear bomb. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and while while it, that paint chip might not do any damage against, say, a spacecraft, because a spacecraft has some. Uh, some shielding on it that will protect it against those small particle collisions. If it's a, an incredibly unlucky uh, astronaut on a spacewalk, it has the potential of doing at least some damage to the spacesuit, which could be catastrophic for the astronaut inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's moving around these incredible speeds. And when you've got that that level of momentum in, in the equation, you have to be – uh, cognizant of it. Um, as for where all this stuff is, most of it is in a, uh, an altitude that's within 2,000 kilometers of the Earth's surface, which sounds, you know, pretty pretty big. In fact, a lot of it um, is between 750 and 800 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. And debris uh, below 600 kilometers altitude will end up falling to the Earth within a few years. You remember when I said it might take more than a century? Mm-hmm. Well, Above a thousand kilometers, that's where you're running into it. Where the it, it's going to take at least a century, possibly more, for the orbit to decay enough for that object to start to fall uh, to the Earth. Uh, keeping in mind that an orbit is essentially just a sustained fall anyway. You're falling at, at yeah, a but speed. You're falling in a turning motion. Yeah, yeah. You're falling uh, toward the Earth at the same, you know, at a rate that's com- comparable to the the rotation of the Earth. So, and you're falling at an angle where it's like you're just in constant freefall. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
that's that's a real problem for any spacecraft that needs to be in that in that range. Uh, not all spacecraft do need to be in that range. Uh, things that are in geostationary orbit are much higher up. Yeah, that's uh, something like 35.7 thousand kilometers. kilometers yeah. and, and in that range, there's really not that much space debris. And most operators who have some sort of uh, spacecraft up in that range, you know, we're talking about like telecommunication satellites, uh, that sort of stuff that needs to be in geostationary orbit. That's where we've got this uh, uh, satellite that's above a kind of a fixed point along the equator of the Earth. Um, it's very valuable real estate. Like they consider it a natural resource that's very important. So operators who are working on spacecraft that is about to go to the end of its life, you know, at the end of its life, instead of just leaving it there, they will usually boost it out of that orbit, you know, which takes a lot of energy, but it does mean that you free up that space for something else to take up because there's only a limited number of spaces in that in that orbit that you can use. So this way you end up conserving that uh, by allowing someone else to take the space that that satellite used to be in. But uh, which is why that's one good thing. Like if we were to talk about a massive problem with space debris, we probably wouldn't see a huge impact on things like weather satellites and communication satellites because they tend to be at altitudes higher than where a lot of the space debris is. So that's some good news, but there are a lot of other satellites that would be affected, not to mention any kind of uh, operations for things like the Hubble Space Telescope, other mm-hmm. space telescopes. Um, also, just getting things into space would eventually start becoming a problem. Sure, getting past this kind of you know field of junk. Uh, I think of that not entirely scientifically accurate uh, scene in Wally where they're trying to escape the Earth. <laughs> right. And they have uh, to, like, bust through a cloud of I think, of I think it's fair to say that's not entirely scientifically accurate. <laughs> but, yes. Uh, so, you know, the... the but, the... but it is true that real estate up there is limited. Yeah. I mean, and you, you could run out of space. Right, in space. And long before you ran out of space, you'd probably run out of uh, space that it was safe to use simultaneously. Or even right. just, like you were saying, Lauren, or just, just flying to get to... Like, even if you're going beyond that point, you still have to get through that section. Uh, and, you know, as I said, these... The, the amount of space debris increases over time, even if you don't shoot anything else up there, because anything that's up there now, eventually it's going to collide with something else. It's really just a matter of time. Assuming that you don't have it uh, come back down to Earth, eventually it's going to collide with something, which means that it creates more space debris. So uh, even if we halted all space operations right now and never send anything else up, we would see space debris increase over time at least until... For the first, you know, few dozen years Yeah, a century or so. Mm-hmm. You know, once you get through a century, then you'd probably end up having significantly More less dropping up there. More um, Now, uh, the reason why I thought it would be interesting to talk about this right now is because, uh, you know, a, a few weeks back, a movie called Gravity came out. And uh, I went and saw this movie. Have either of you seen it? Nope. No, I really wanted to. But, it's it's uh, it's a fantastic film. It's um, uh, I've got problems with it. <laughs> there there are some problems with its physics, but it's a fun, highly stressful film. So if you don't deal with stress very well, then I don't necessarily say that you should go out and see it. Uh, I certainly wanted to see it because I yearn for films that get the. Uh, I say this like I've been to space. I haven't been to space, but I was going to say to get the terror of space right, at least as I would imagine it. I mean, just knowing what you know about how empty and huge and 
awe-inspiring and inspiring and horrifying at the same time space is so many movies make it so mundane space is a, sta- a sound stage you yeah know? space is space is just uh the the bit you go through to get from point a to point b yeah and and not really anything to consider beyond that but if so, you were to think of it in the terms of you you are in a self-contained environment within this space suit that you cannot get out of because if you did you would die because space, as we have said many times, is trying to kill you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were to become separated from your spacecraft with no actual means of propelling yourself back toward it. That I can't, you know, you, you would just imagine you would have a, a rapidly escalating panic attack leading possibly to despair if you didn't pass out from the, the stress of it all. And that's kind of what they are depicting in the film Gravity. And in, in Gravity, you've got a, uh, ludicrously underprepared astronaut who uh, is working on uh, the Hubble Space Telescope when there is a catastrophic uh, impact with space debris caused by uh, Russians firing a missile at a satellite. So this is not an unprecedented event, as we've talked about in this very podcast. Um, so it, it, the space debris becomes a hazard and ends up separating this astronaut from her spacecraft. And the rest of the film is pretty much her attempts at surviving in the least survivable environment we can think of, short of being suddenly finding yourself like either in a molten core of the earth or underneath the, you know, in the Marianas trench or something, but it's, it's pretty inhospitable. So, uh, it's, you know, I thought it was interesting to bring up because a lot of the stuff they bring up really does play into this, that, that terror you're talking about, even if everything's going right, I would imagine that a lot of astronauts feel a, a small sense of, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little scared. You know, well, it's so easy to forget that we live on a ball of iron hurtling around a fire so big that you cannot imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. I often forget (laughs) that, you know, I'm watching my TV. Um, (laughs) So let's talk about some of the approaches to fixing this problem. So, first of all, we've talked a little bit about uh, improving the. The, you mean the script problems and no, gravity? No, 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 I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I mean the space <laughs> junk problem The itself. space junk problem. Okay. Script problems and gravity are beyond our help because the movie <laughs> has already come out. Although I I did enjoy gravity, but I, I have some nits to pick, yeah. but that's a different podcast. <laughs> so talking about space junk and how to, to solve that, one is to try and minimize producing more space junk by better designing our space vehicles. So creating that kind of shielding, uh, being able to decommission the, the spacecraft at the end of their useful lives by bringing them back to the Earth safely, uh, that kind of thing. But even if we did all that and everything was working great, the stuff that's already up there is already causing damage and is just going to continue to do so and continue to cause headaches for anyone who's trying to plan out a space exploration uh, mission. So some of the uh, solutions involve some pretty interesting approaches, mostly um, grabbing stuff and then hauling it down or pushing it down to the earth. And there are a couple of different approaches. I saw one that involved harpoons, where we would uh, send up a harp, uh, uh, essentially, uh, <laughs> it is, a little <laughs> spacecraft, a satellite, essentially, that would have uh, power and would be able to harpoon space debris. A and then Ahab. Yeah. Yeah, the Ahab one. <laughs> and then would aim at uh, the ocean and maybe even hit a white whale on the way down. But uh, <laughs> the idea would be that it would, it would uh, you know, pierce whatever the debris is and then tow it back 
down into the Earth's atmosphere and where it would be destroyed essentially from the massive pressure and heat. Then there's the uh, the Clean Space One. That was the Swiss one, right? Yeah. With, uh, with the, the the Claw Game. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so if you've ever seen the Claw Game, you know, or Toy Story, you know what I'm talking about. The Claw Game that you would see in fairgrounds or yeah, yeah. Claw reaches out. Uh, you use it to pick up a toy. That rigged, hopefully mm-hmm. rigged cheater machine. Someone someone has to someone steal has, quarters from children. Someone until has they never cry. someone has never won a toy from the Claw <laughs> Game. Um, uh, Yes. So anyway, if you imagine one of those claws mounted on kind of a, a cube uh, that has a, a, a thruster on the back of it, that's more or less what the Clean One looks like, and uh, the Clean Space One, rather. And the idea is to launch this in 2018, and the test is to try and retrieve uh, a CubeSat, a little Cube satellite mm-hmm. that the Swiss launched in either 2009 or 2010, because there's actually two potential targets. Uh, those are those little um, 10 centimeter per side. Uh, what's that? Like three, three, three and a half? Yeah, 3.4 3. 3. 3. inches mm-hmm. to a side. Yeah, really small satellites. So this thing's not big, and the things it's collecting are not big, but as we've already uh, established, it doesn't matter if it's big in space. If it's moving fast enough, it, can, it has the potential to cause damage. So the... Uh, the Clean Space One has this claw that would come out of the front of it and gra- grasp this uh, tiny little satellite, and then it would direct itself back toward Earth for destruction. Um, so it's you know it's a one way trip for this uh, for Clean Space One, and uh, that's also interesting. I'm curious to see if that works out. But my favorite uses something that we talked about on the podcast before in a way, although this is I, I argue the 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 naming of this but it, it kind of involves tractor beams i think <gasps> i think that people just like saying the word tractor beam so yeah i think that's why they're there's calling a beam it that. involved yes and uh, uh an electrostatic beam an electron beam an electron beam exactly so you know when things accumulate excess electrons they build up an electrostatic charge this is the sort of stuff that happens when you rub your feet against the carpet and you build up that electrostatic charge and i think that's a really negative attitude Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. no oh let's not go down this road joe <laughs> You will not like where it leads. Anyway, well, so, but charges can be positive or negative. They can be. And, and so with this negative charge, like if, if you're talking about the kind of charge you build up when you shuffle your feet against the, the carpet and you zap somebody, those, that's pretty, that's not a significant charge. But the idea here is that we would have a satellite that would be able to project an electron beam at space debris until it developed enough of an electrostatic charge so that if you were to send a positively charged probe flying by it, the opposite charges would attract one another. Mm-hmm. Positive attracts negative and vice versa. So, if so you now this, you see my pun was relevant. Huh. I never said it wasn't relevant. I said you didn't want to see where that road led. <laughs> so the, Lauren can back me up on this. So the positively charged probe flies by the negatively charged debris, and those those opposite charges attract one another. The probe is powered, so it could pull and the defunct tow, debris. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think the idea on this one is to actually tow them into uh, uh, higher orbits and then fling them away from Earth rather yeah. than pulling them down. Right, yeah. The, this would be the, the idea would be to, to try and, and move these out of the danger zone of uh, or Earth <laughs> orbits entirely. Um, <laughs> you having a little Archer moment? Uh, anyway, the, the, the problem here is that it would be a very slow process. It would take months 
of time to move a single piece of space debris. And you couldn't turn the electron beam off because if you did, the space debris would start to accumulate other ions, positively charged ions. It, and would, it would very quickly become uh, neutral. Right? Yeah, eventually the charge would just become neutral, exactly. So your, your positively charged probe would just be flying off without it because there would be nothing to attract the two anymore. Um, the sometimes device. relationships just die. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the device, by the way, is being called the glider, which is written a lot like GLaDOS, um, which I kind of appreciate, which which stands for um, the Geosynchronous Large Debris Reorbiter. Yeah. So, mm. uh, and that's another thing is that this particular approach would be designed for uh, specific types of space debris. It wouldn't work on everything. So this, you know, we're probably going to need a multi-tiered approach to addressing space debris in a way that uh, – that actually reduces space debris faster than the generation of space debris just from these collisions that are happening. So it's, it's a big challenge. It's a huge challenge. And NASA, uh, like I said, is mostly focused on minimizing the generation of space debris and then looking at what, what options are realistic and which ones are likely to have the best return so that we can reduce this issue uh, effectively. So. Yeah. And it's going to be really important, I think, for the for the future. I was reading a couple articles that we're looking forward to when we have, um, you know, research or other settlements on the moon or on Mars where they do not have um, the the kind of atmospheres that will burn up debris as it falls, and they might not. Well, I mean, in in the case of the moon, anyway, they don't have stable geosynchronous orbits that you can use uh, to to keep satellites that we're going to need up there for. For technology to for work. For communication, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for multiple reasons, but yeah. And so, mean, you, how would you know what the moon weather is otherwise if you don't have a climate satellite up there? And so dealing with all of that is going to be very important when we start yes. moving out into those territories. I have a question that you might not know the answer to. But Ask I me the question. <laughs> I wonder if it's reasonable to think that space debris could become a problem beyond Earth orbit, uh, like at other high and beyond, say, moon orbit, but at other... Um, just static points in the solar system, say, like the Lagrange points. Like if we're going to start forming bands of artificial asteroids in, in places around the solar system, for example, that would, or, um, uh, you know, artificial comets, for lack of a better word, that are just going to be zipping around? It's certainly possible. I mean, especially when you're talking about extending space travel to to places like Mars, I could, you know, hopefully we will learn our lesson and make sure that whatever approach we use with Mars will minimize the chance for space debris. Uh, there are, you know, there's certain realities we have to face. For one, accidents happen. So sometimes we're going to see a malfunction that's going to cause space debris, uh, or there could be a collision that we did not uh, anticipate that could cause it. So I expect that it will always be an issue, the question is, how do we deal with it? And, and can we do it in such a way where we are uh, reducing the impact as much as possible? No pun intended with impact. But the, you know, that is the, that's the key because I don't <laughs> think there's any way to eliminate it. It's just how can you mitigate it as much as possible so that space travel is a possibility, that space exploration is still a viable uh, uh, pursuit and not something where, you know, sure, we could launch this multi-billion dollar telescope into low Earth orbit. And yeah, sure, we'd be able to see further than we've ever seen before. But there's a chance that it could get destroyed within its first six months of operation due to space debris. So no one's going to fund it. I mean, that would be a tragedy. Oh, so. sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And, and it's not that, I mean, sophisticated enough equipment has the capacity to 
maneuver around like a like I know that they can maneuver the ISS yes. if they see something coming. Exactly. They say that about once a year they have to maneuver the ISS. They'll they'll track space debris. The ISS is not in an orbit that is particularly endangered by space debris, but uh they say that if they track an object that looks like it's going to come within a few kilometers of the the ISS, they'll then project the uh, the chance of it hitting. Right. I, uh, I, I think that if it's specifically like there's a greater than one in 10,000 chance of, yeah. of it impacting, exactly. then they go ahead and move the space right. station. If they, say, if they say the chances of impact are greater than one in 10,000, let's go ahead and use the, the propulsion system on the ISS to maneuver it to a safe distance. And they say it happens not frequently, but about once a year if you average it out. So it's not like, you know, oh, it's that time of year again. Yep. <laughs> that space debris is coming back around. April 4th. Yeah. Yep. No. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of, um, the rundown on space junk and how it is a real problem. It's not just, you know, oh yeah, I've heard about that. That's annoying. If you ever look at NASA's, uh, illustrations of space junk and you look, you, you know, it just looks like there's a cloud of debris just completely enveloping the earth. It's kind of terrifying yeah. when you look at it like that. Though about half of that stuff is just cartridges of the ET game for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yes, exactly. They they launched it into low Earth orbit as opposed to burying it in a desert. Well, and, you're gonna run out of desert eventually. <laughs> yeah. You gotta put those cartridges somewhere. I don't know that they made that many of them, but we're gonna go ahead and humor you. So uh, let's wrap this up. All right. So that's kind of our discussion about space junk. How it is something to be concerned about uh, in the long term for for human exploration. I have every confidence that there are very smart people looking at ways to solve this and uh i i'm optimistic that we're going to find some ways to do this that will make sense from uh from a scientific and financial perspective uh, i like i said i don't think we're ever going to completely eliminate space debris but i have a feeling that given enough time we're going to get a handle on it it's just a question of how long is that time going to be um, I think we should prioritize it personally because I like space. So guys, uh, that wraps up our discussion. You should definitely go to fwthinking.com. That's our home website where you're going to find our videos, our podcasts, our blog posts, lots of other cool links that uh, I know you guys are going to love. So make sure you visit that site. And remember, you can check us out on our social media platforms. Well, not ours. We just, we're there. We don't own them. But Facebook and Twitter, it's FW Thinking for both of those. And we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Adam. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, 
Then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic: Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math and Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast Climbing in Heels is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.